Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia, a radio.com station. Live from the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I'm not declaring a public health emergency of international concern today. As it was yesterday, the emergency committee was divided over whether the outbreak of novel coronavirus represents a fake or not. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And on a Sunday morning, we welcome everyone in to Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. This is a live version of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Uh, and Dr. Marianne, a very meaningful, very powerful, very measurable show uh, that we are going to have for the listening audience for the next 60 minutes. Thank you so much, Joe. And a very special welcome to our guest today. We're here to talk about the coronavirus. This is a dynamic situation continues to evolve, and it's dominating the news, as it should. And we want to bring you the experts in Philadelphia who are working around the clock to learn about this new virus. You hear it called the novel virus. Track it, collaborate with other hospitals, the Department of Health, and the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, to bring you the information you need. As always, my goal is to be your voice, asking questions that bring answers to help make good decisions for yourself and your loved ones. Here in studio, Dr. Edward Jasper, Associate Professor from Jefferson University Hospital. He works in the emergency room, and he's the Medical Director of Emergency Management. He's also the Director of Bioterrorism and Disaster Preparedness Center at Jefferson, and he's our COVID-19 Task Force Leader. Also in studio, and thank you so much for being here, Steve Alice from the Philadelphia Department of Public Health. And he is the Bioterrorism and Public Health Preparedness Manager. And joining us by phone, Dr. John Zerlow, a distinguished professor and chief of Division of Infectious Disease at Jefferson University Hospital. Welcome all. Now, thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you for hopping on with us. This is a very tough day for all of you to be here with so much going on. I should start with saying that. The Center for Disease Control, the CDC, we'll refer to it as the CDC throughout the show, tells us that coronaviruses make up a group of viruses that cause respiratory illnesses with symptoms similar to the flu. Now, corona means crown in Latin, because under the microscope, we can see crown-like spikes on the surface of the virus. They're common in people and many different animals, like camels, cattle, cats, bats, Rarely, an animal corona can affect people and then spreads among uh, more people. And this is what happened in 2002 with SARS, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and again in 2011 in Saudi Arabia with the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. So we've seen coronavirus before. But let's revisit the end of 2019. Wuhan, a city of 11 million people in the Hubei province of China. There was a cluster of cases of pneumonia attributed to a new coronavirus. Initially, the virus was associated with a seafood market, or what they call a wet market because of seafood. But they also sold live animals, rabbits, snakes. And because most of the patients worked there, it was assumed that was the the source. 
Then other cases appeared in patients who hadn't visited the market and also in healthcare workers, suggesting a person-to-person transmission. It spread rapidly, became an epidemic throughout China, and then sporadic cases around the globe. And in February, the World Health Organization designated the disease COVID-19, CO for corona, VI for virus, D for disease. You'll hear COVID-19, and that's what it means. And the actual virus has been named SARS-CoV-2 because it's so similar to the original SARS that we saw in 2002. So Dr. John Zarlow was on our phone. Um, John, tell us a little bit more about the coronavirus. Um, well, in many ways, it's not greatly surprising that this kind of thing might happen. Um, once again, looking back at the original SARS epidemic in 2002 and MERS in 2012, these are all coronaviruses. These viruses are um, an ever-changing kind of virus. In other words, they can mutate pretty quickly, as we've seen. And so viruses that would typically, like these, uh, just exist in animal hosts can sometimes alter even slightly their genetic makeup. And if people then become in contact with animals, live animals in this kind of situation, it's not terribly surprising that we might see a new infectious agent arise uh, that, that, that can cause trouble in humans. So I think that this is, uh, you know, not terribly unexpected, but uh, obviously very difficult to foresee in a very specific way and therefore to be prepared, you know, in, in any real way. So this is the challenge I think we face. Sure. And even though initially it was thought to be from the live animals um, in the Wuhan market, there was also another theory, I guess it doesn't really matter, but about 300 yards away from the seafood market is the Wuhan, their own CDC, and their viral institute or the Institute of Virology where they study bats and animals with respiratory diseases. Is it possible that it may have started there? Well, once again, I I, I would never say never, but we, we don't have any kind of data that would support that. I, right. I don't think that's necessarily at this point a very helpful way to be no. thinking about this, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so what did we learn from SARS in 2002-2003 that was also a coronavirus? Well, I think we learned a bit about, once more, about these coronaviruses. I think we learned a little about a bit about the spread of these viruses. Um, SARS was a bit different insofar that it seemed to, uh, to kill more people. Um, it, it seemed like a more serious infection, and maybe... For that reason, it was easier to case identify. And Mm -hmm. once you've identified someone, you can quarantine them more easily. And somehow, I mean, if you think about also back in 2002 compared to now, you know, the world has really become ever more opened up. I mean, people travel more. So, you know, I think the combination of the fact that we could more easily identify these cases and therefore quarantine them, and people weren't traveling to the same degree, it seemed a bit easier to bring under control. Remember, the current problem that we're facing with the COVID-19 is that many people just get a very mild type of illness that they wouldn't really distinguish from the common cold or even more severe, just the flu, but they get over it. And so there's really little for these mildly symptomatic people that would distinguish them from 
anybody else who might have one of these these uh, viral infections. So that is a huge challenge in trying to case identify. Sure. Um, and it's interesting. We can't say that it came and went, but there hasn't been a reported case of SARS since 2004. So it's interesting to see, as you say, these gene, these um, viruses can mutate and change. How would you compare this current coronary, uh, coronary coronavirus to the flu uh, in terms of more or less contagious mortality rate? Well, you know, both of those questions are still to be determined, but sure. our best guess is that it is a bit more contagious than the flu, which is a bit worrisome. And we don't know how deadly it is. Um, it's probably more deadly than the, the circulating flu viruses that occur each year, although since so many more people get the flu each year, even though the, the mortality rate is what we think is much less than the COVID, you know, many more people are likely to die from the flu each year, including this one, than, mm-hmm. than for COVID. So, um, so it, it shares some similarities. I mean, the reality is when people get sick with COVID, sick enough to be in the intensive care unit with pneumonia and so forth, it's very similar to the kind of severe illness that we see with the flu. So in many ways, they do share some characteristics. Sure. Um, so we're still to be determined just how how deadly it will turn out to be. Um, that's a challenge. As everyone's probably, all of, all of the listeners probably know, it seems to be more deadly and more serious in people who are older, probably over 60 anyway. And certainly it, it seems to rise kind of exponentially when you're 70 or 80. And in addition with these chronic medical problems like heart disease and COPD and um, you know, immunosuppression or cancer. So probably those people are more likely to get more seriously ill. Yes, and, and we heard a breakdown over the weekend of the cases in Italy that the average age of um, these sick people was 60, and the average age of those dying from corona in Italy was 80. So a uh, point well made. Um, and as of uh, the end of February... 34 million cases of the flu in the U.S. with 350,000 in the hospital and 20,000 deaths. Um, so we're not looking for a silver lining, but perhaps one of the lessons uh, that we're all being more conscientious about hand washing and social distancing, we'll talk about that expression in a minute, is maybe we'll see a decrease in uh, cases of the flu if we get people into better habits. Um, so you mentioned uh, Dr. Zerlo from Jefferson Infectious Disease. That the coronavirus, we don't know yet whether it can mutate, but we do know, am I right, that there are two strains, the L and the S strains? Well, you know, I don't know. That paper came out just this week, and I think that needs to be confirmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Chinese reported that. I don't know whether that's true or not. I think that that's that's rather preliminary. I think we don't really know that. Sure. But it'd be interesting to see. I mean, um, listeners should know how important it is to get the flu vaccine because we do know with the flu that that can mutate during a season. So you might have the flu early in the season, which begins, what, October, November, and can go through to maybe April, May. You can get the flu twice in one season, and who knows, maybe that could happen with coronavirus. Let me ask Dr. Zerlo one question on behalf of the listeners. Dr. Zerlo, if I'm 55 years old and I'm listening to uh, the radio show Right now, as we are live on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, should I, what type of 
general concern should I have just because I'm in that age group or I'm north of 55, but I'm in the upper end of the age group? Well, I mean, I, I think it's natural that, that people would be concerned and worried. I mean, obviously, the, the whole population seems to be worried about all this. Um, so a couple of the things that I would advise. Number one, you know, if you haven't had a flu shot yet, um, it, it still makes sense to do that because flu is still widespread in most of the states in the United States. You know, so if you get an illness that turns out to be the flu, then obviously um, I think everybody's going to be concerned if they were to develop symptoms like that. Could this be a coronavirus? So if you haven't had the flu, vi- uh, the flu vaccine, it's not too late to get the flu vaccine. Um, so I, I, I appreciate everybody's uh, otherwise concern, the, the hypothetical 55-plus-year-old, maybe with a few medical problems. So um, I, I think it's a bit of a challenge. I think, um, you, you, I think everybody's heard of all the kinds of things that we, we should be thinking through and thinking about, you know, in closed spaces. If you're watching somebody cough or sneeze, you know, try and move away from them. Uh, the, the, whole, the whole problem of touching your your hands to your mouth and nose and face, that's a real challenge. Uh, I mean, we're all, we all do these things unconsciously. So the premise is that somebody's sneezed on a surface and, and you touch it and then you just kind of reach up and you touch your eye or your nose or your mouth. You know, we, we know that this is the way that some kinds of virus, uh, viral infections are spread, although we do believe that it's actually these droplets of people actively coughing and sneezing that are probably the most infectious. But um, so when you're out in public places, uh, try not to, to touch your face if you can. When you get home, wash your hands or if you have hand sanitizer, which is now nationwide in very short supply, um, you, you know, either one of those things. But, you know, the hand washing, there's always going to be soap around. There's plenty of soap available. Um, you know, those would be the things to, to consider. Um, I don't think we have enough you know, reason at this moment, given where we stand in the epidemic, to suggest that people have to, you know, don't go out in public and all this quarantining stuff that people have talked about. But we have to see as this uh, as this evolves, just how uh, how what kinds of guidance we're going to give to the public uh, about what they should and shouldn't be doing. Let me let me just ask you a quick follow up to that. If I have a cold or a scratchy throat or um, the sniffles, let's say, and I normally, my normal course of action would be to take a couple of vitamin C's, disregard, and go back to work tomorrow morning as a normal procedure. Is that still the right process? Well, I think um, for that kind of situation, remember, the, 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 for that kind of situation, perhaps you should. And remember, and, and practicing the same kinds of hand-washing guidelines and so forth, Remember, the symptoms that seem to be most consistent with COVID are, number one, fever. Most people have fever when they develop this. Uh, Fever, cough, and then when people get sick, they get short of breath. You know, I think if you have a fever um, and a fever and a cough, those would be the kinds of things that I, yeah, maybe this would be a time that um, I I should stay home uh, and practice the kinds of self-quarantining, as we say, you know, stay home, keep your hands clean. Um, if you're if you're living with people, you know, practice what we call, you know, the proper hygiene. If you're going to cough or sneeze, do it into a tissue or a napkin or into the 
into the crux of your arm, as you've probably seen this demonstrated. So those seem to be the symptoms that are, are most consistent with COVID cough, fever, and they become short of breath and, and you need to seek medical attention. And I think too, uh, Dr. Zerlo, one of the challenges is the fact that this incubation can last up to 14 days. Although most people who are come in contact are sick within about five days, it's that much harder to track if people who are without symptoms are sharing that virus um, during that 14 days. This is your radio doctor here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. We'll get to our first commercial break uh, on the radio station this morning. If anybody listening to the radio show has a question, uh, we do invite you to call in. We're not going to be able to bring you on the air But you're welcome to call in at 855-839-1210, Jimmy, our producer, will take your question down. And as the show rolls on, we'll try and work some of those questions in. We'll get to a commercial break. Back on the other side. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And back here live on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, this is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Rich. It's a special live edition of the radio show on this Sunday morning. We're here uh, until the top of the hour in studio. Uh, as a reminder to the listening audience, Dr. Edward Jasper is with us in studio. Steve Alice is with us uh, in studio on the phone, joining us, who was with us in the opening segment, uh, Dr. John Zerlo. Dr. Zerlo is going to stay on hold for just a moment uh, and continue to join us in the program. Marianne, back to you as we roll along on a Sunday morning. Thank you all. So I guess what we could all say is that we should have a three-prong approach, confine, test, and treat. And we're very fortunate because uh, Mr. Steve Alice is the Director of Disease Control from the Department of Health here in Philadelphia. And I guess the big question that people want to ask is, whom should be tested? How do they go about it if they have seen symptoms? And um, um, as Dr. Zerlo said, fever is one of the distinctions. So, Dr. Steve Alice, please fill us in a little better. Thank you, Marianne. And so I'd like to just uh, emphasize that this is a changing situation. And so weeks ago, who was recommended to get testing in Philadelphia looked different. There were clear case definitions from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, that we used across the country to determine who qualified to be tested. Now we're expanding that case definition, and we're willing to test more people because in the city of Philadelphia, Our emphasis right now is on detection of new cases, trying to find cases, and then containment, trying to control spread within Philadelphia. And so right now, the expansion of who should be tested is anyone who has signs and symptoms, like Dr. Zerlo described, fever, cough, other kinds of respiratory types of complaints. And we still want to hear about some other at-risk activity. And right now, that's international travel or exposure to somebody else, direct contact with a known case of COVID-19. And we'll test somebody with that same sort of clinical combination of symptoms who may reside or live in uh, a closed residential community. So a nursing home resident, say, for example, or a student that lives in a dormitory or a prisoner. And then a healthcare worker. We also want high-risk occupations. We want to be all over detecting our initial cases 
in those populations because they pose a higher risk of spreading it to vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. And so um, they have to have a risk. Their profile has to have some sort of risk that would direct you to say, here's a person I need to. And, of course, I'm sure it also varies by location, uh, depending what state uh, we're talking about. We're talking about Philadelphia today in general, but um, I'm sure it, it, it's different um, with different uh, interventions depending on the population too, sure. Well, it also depends on severity of symptoms, too. And so somebody who is mildly symptomatic and doesn't really have any of those other risk factors I talked about, we would recommend stay out of of the public, watch your symptoms for progression, and then typically if it can be managed at home, that's fine, and people should continue to do that. Dr. Steve Allis joining us here in the studio on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Dr. Allis, let me get you to weigh in on this. A week ago... Um, there were no cases in Pennsylvania. So perhaps um, we casually went along with our normal day and we knew the story was out there, but we didn't pay attention to it as much. Now with the uh, governor's announcement and then the update from yesterday, more people now, including those listening to the radio show, are now paying even more uh, attention to that. Should they? Uh, Yes, I think that this is an evolving epidemic that's affecting our nation and the world, and it is starting to be detected here locally. Again, getting back to the conversation that Marianne had with Dr. Zerlo, how severe is this? We look at transmissibility, how easily it spreads from person to person, and then how severe the disease is, who it makes very sick, and how many people it might kill. And so some of that is still relatively unknown. Because it's unknown and we don't know how big the impact could be, it is very important to take this seriously right now to help us identify cases and then to contain spread. In the early days here in Philadelphia, in this part of Pennsylvania, we're somewhat fortunate with respect to the rest of our country because we're kind of a late city to start getting our first cases. And in some ways, that helps us to better understand how transmission is happening across our country and then to put in measures right now to help us detect the early cases and to control the spread of those people by keeping them out of the community if they're well enough to stay at home. And if anyone wants to opine, uh, Dr. Jasper, Dr. Zerlo, Dr. Alice, it seems as though, and I think this is taken from the Chinese data perhaps, that about 80-81% of the cases are mild for the most part, maybe 14% are severe maybe 5% of all those are critical. And those actual numbers don't matter so much. But the message is that the average American is still at low risk, safe to say. We have to take precautions. And of the people who do get it, most of the time it's a mild case. And correct me if I'm wrong with that, Dr. Zerlo. No, that seems to be what we understand so far. Um, Once again, the the age is the key and and chronic medical conditions are another key. Um, I think it's reassuring, for example, that children um, seem to to do pretty well with it, children and young adults. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know there are a lot of parents out there worried about their children and and how how sick they can get. I think the issue of children or young adults with it is, yeah, they have something that looks like a cold, and they, of course, then could spread it to, to others. We know that happens in the flu. Um, it's really children, and, and especially children, who get flu and then uh, spread it to adults. And that's the, one of the, the uh, reasons that we try and vaccinate children to keep that kind of spread from occurring. Let me throw something out there and just uh, perhaps get you to weigh in on this. I had somebody 
uh, text me this morning as I was preparing for the show, and they were using Italy as the example where a few weeks ago Italy was not where it is uh, today. And the question was, in two weeks or in three weeks or as we get to the end of March, should we, should I, the individual was asking on behalf of themselves, should I think that that we're going, that it's going to, that what is happening in Italy now is going to be here? Is that a fair assumption? Is that a correct assumption? There's no way to know that, but that was the question. Yeah, I think that it's reasonable to ask that question, but um, we are hoping that that doesn't happen here. And the the goal that we have here with respect to, again, early detection of cases that are here in Philadelphia and control of spread by testing people who we think might have the disease, keeping them out of the community away so that they can't spread it to other people, and then to do contact tracing. And that is to identify people who have been exposed to those initial cases and then having them out of the community in a quarantine or self-isolation period where they look for and monitor for their own symptoms to develop. If those people stay out of the community and don't spread it to other people, then we are at an advantage to try to stop the spread of this disease so that in two, three weeks from now, we are not in the situation that Italy finds itself in. And there is some encouraging information. When you look at China, they have over 80,000 of the cases, and they had been reporting thousands of new cases every day. That's been going down significantly. Uh, Yesterday, there were only about 50 new cases reported in the entire country. So they've put in place a lot of infection control measures. So we're somewhat optimistic that if the things that Dr. Alice and Dr. Zerlo mentioned are put into place and everybody follows those measures, that we do have a chance that we can control this and we won't be in the situation that, say, Italy is now. Mm-hmm. And you're right, Dr. Jasper, because I think they announced maybe Friday uh, that as of that day, there were no new cases outside of Wuhan. So whatever they're doing to restrict, um, hopefully we can learn from that. And, you know, uh, the other thing what we were mentioning was uh, 80% of the Cases are pretty mild. We didn't talk about mortality rate because we almost can't. You really have to test everybody um, to say out of all the people who have it, this is how many die. And we are not testing people who don't have symptoms. So um, I don't think we uh, really focus very much on that. For the listeners, please, if you do call your doctor, uh, well, I should say call your doctor. If you're not sure, call your doctor, call your health care provider and say, should I come in to be seen? And we're going to talk about that. If a person gets tested, where do they go? How do they handle it? Should they? When do we decide to, say, go to your primary care doctor, go to the emergency room? But if you do, please call the doctor's office or the emergency room in advance and say, I, need to, I think I might have coronavirus, and notify them so they can take proper precautions to separate you from the other people in those waiting rooms and wear a mask. We're going to talk about masks. As we roll up on the uh, commercial break, Dr. Zerlo, I'm going to come to you and give you an open mic for a moment and give you last word uh, as we go into the commercial break here this morning on a Sunday morning. Uh, Last word, no open question, just open thoughts from you as we get into the commercial break. Well, once again, I think we're we're still um, in the process of uh, trying to make testing widely available. Um, I, I think it would be... I think uh, reassuring to the public that we have testing that we're uh, that the, the health officials and, and various health organizations like mine at Jefferson that we're really ready for this. I mean, we have a task force that 
you know, we've been spending lots and lots of time trying to come up with, make sure we have the right policies in place. So, you know, we have the public's um, health and interest in mind, and, and I think we're going to just keep move, moving forward and uh, see how this develops over the next several days and weeks. Last question for you, Dr. Zerlo. Pregnant women, um, can they transmit the virus to their baby? We're getting questions about that. Uh, maybe they're not more susceptible, but maybe they're more susceptible to a severe case. Can you comment on that quickly? We don't have any data right now on pregnancy. We don't really know that, that uh, pregnant women can spread virus to their to their babies. So right now, uh, you know, I think for pregnant women, much like anybody else in the population, hand washing, uh, all that personal hygiene stuff is the most important. And maybe instead of nursing, they should pump their milk and have somebody else give the baby the bottle. Thank you yeah, so I think much. That's Dr. what Zerlo. we're suggesting. Wonderful. Good. Thank you so much for joining us. And happy birthday. Thank you. Back with more on Your Radio Doctor here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne hey, Ritchie is proudly provided by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. Back here on Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. One reminder, if you miss any of the program today or if you'd like to re-listen to the program, uh, you can do one of two things. You can go to yourradiodoctor.com. Or you can go to Radio.com, search Your Radio Doctor, and all of the audio will be there. It is Your Radio Doctor On Demand. Marianne? Thank you, Joe. And thank you to our guests. Again, we are so fortunate because these are the people who are working around the clock to keep Philadelphia and beyond safe. And I'd like to hear from Dr. Ed Jasper. He is one of our emergency room physicians at Jefferson. Um, He's the medical director of emergency management. He's the director of our Bioterrorism and Disaster Preparedness Center, and he's also our COVID-19 task force leader. And really, um, we are so blessed to have him at the helm because he is coordinating a major network of hospitals in Philadelphia with the Department of Health, keeping in touch with CDC. We are really in great hands, and um, this is not the first time that we've faced an issue like this. We've learned lessons from Legionnaires in Philadelphia in 1976, HIV, Ebola, SARS, anthrax, anthrax, H1N1, Zika. And, you know, disaster preparedness also, Dr. Jasper, would include the papal visit or when we had the Broad Street run if there's a a water main break. There are all those things that that he has spent decades with his team preparing for today. Thanks for having me. I um, did want to touch on what is emergency management. So, you know, it was stated that I'm the medical director for emergency management for Jefferson. Well, emergency management is a committee that exists in all acute care hospitals. And we work behind the scenes because fortunately there aren't uh, disasters to, to deal with on a daily basis. But we plan for what might happen. And we work off of what's called a hazard vulnerability analysis, an HVA. And what that is, is we look at the things that we're most worried about and deal with them first, and then work down the list. And just about everybody's HVA, number one on the list has been, for decades, infectious disease outbreak. So we have been working on that, all hospitals, working with health departments, on a plan for managing this type of situation. And in addition, it's something that's not new for us. We had uh, 2001, we had the anthrax release. In 2003, it was SARS. 
In 2009, we had an outbreak of H1N1 influenza that was concerning at the time. And now we have the COVID outbreak. So these are things we've dealt with. We have plans in place. When it started to occur, we didn't get all nervous and anxious. We just took our plans out again, looked at our supplies that we had been accumulating for years, for decades. Uh, We have meetings that we have regularly all the time. It has nothing to do if there's an outbreak. The hospitals in the city and in the surrounding counties have committees that meet on a regular basis, usually monthly or every other month, all the time, and talk about these things and for planning. And they also have a great relationship with our health departments. And I really can speak. I know people are wondering, well, what's, what are the agencies doing? Do they know what they're doing? Are they preparing? Are they talking to each other? And, yes, we've been doing that for decades. They, the health department, for example, in Philadelphia comes to all of our hospital emergency management meetings. For all of these outbreaks that I mentioned, we could call the health department 24-7, and somebody's there to answer our questions. They're at our meetings. They hold weekly conference calls now that the COVID uh, outbreak has occurred. Those will be more frequent as uh, the numbers start to go up. So the amount of coordination among hospitals and public health, uh, it's, it's amazing to see. And I just wanted to make sure your listeners knew that, that this is not something hospitals are working with in a vacuum. We're working, sharing best practices, making sure we're all doing the right things. Uh, and this goes on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that also goes in your your role also has to cover things like supply chain issues uh, throughout the city um, and answering questions of employees who might be exposed. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So we have accumulated supplies uh, for uh, infectious disease outbreak to protect our staff and our patients. And uh, we had them when this happened. So we sure. always try to get more when we can, but we don't need more in order to operate. We've had that stockpile for decades. Right. Uh, so it's not something that people are panicking. I know they talk about shortages of things out there, but emergency management's job was to make sure we don't have a shortage when something happens. And, and I think all hospital emergency management committees do that job well. Dr. Edward Jasper is in the studio with us, along with Dr. Uh, Steve Allison, and, of course, Dr. Marianne Ritchie on your radio doctor here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. It's a special live show uh, on this Sunday morning. Uh, Dr. Jasper, you hear um, the just for the general public, um, I can't buy hand sanitizer at the CVS if I go on Amazon, it's $75 a bottle. Um, there seems to be some conversation out there or concern by the public that they just can't access some of those things. That's, uh, for whatever reason, that's the case. Call it panic, whatever it is. Um, is that an over, is that a concern that falls into your world at all? Well, at the hospital level, we have the stockpiles that we need for infectious disease control. Uh, Out in the public, the message that Dr. Alice and Dr. Zerlo gave, such as just good general hand washing, the mechanical 20 seconds of really good hand washing is as good as any other type of agent you might put on your hand to disinfect. So avoid touching your face best you can. Uh, Don't cough out into the open air, cough into your sleeve, and uh, try to avoid uh, spreading disease to anybody else. And washing your hands for 20 seconds Uh, as frequently as you can after being out, especially in public, that's really all you need to do. Having a stockpile of Purell and face masks is really not the basic public health message uh, that you need to have. And Dr. Alice, well, you you are uh, a master of prevention. That is your focus. 
and maybe we could review with the listeners in more detail, for instance, a better explanation of what social distancing means. Sure. Yes. So social distancing is a term we use to describe a variety of different activities. Dr. Jasper just described a few, hand washing, coughing or sneezing into your sleeve, maintaining some spatial separation from yourself and other people in big crowded events, three to six feet at a minimum. That's what I think what people need here, three to six feet. That's hard. For droplet-mediated or for infectious diseases that are spread through coughing and sneezes and droplets, that's the recommended distance to maintain. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other thing is, I wonder if, and we don't know yet, uh, and maybe we can or can I comment, again, this is evolving, we don't know enough information yet, but this may even become a seasonal um, virus in that um, it will probably take how long to develop a vaccine, a year plus? I know they're making strides in Israel. Yeah, so we don't know when a vaccine or if a vaccine will be readily available and how that will go at the time something like that happens. But the concern about this becoming a seasonal disease, we don't know about that either. And it it could be. Mm -hmm. And so I would like to just emphasize that, you know, we don't exactly know how bad this is going to be for all of us here in Philadelphia. But I do think this is an opportunity for us to get a little smarter about the threat of infectious diseases to communities like ours. As Dr. Jasper mentioned, we've known about these threats for a long time, and we expect there will be future threats That could be worse than the COVID-19 situation that we're dealing with. So I think a big message and for the public to start thinking about is what is our role in helping to prevent the spread of infectious diseases in our own community on a regular basis? So again, getting back to seasonal flu, every February and March, we have high rates of transmission of influenza. And so just to think about things like not going to work or school when you're sick and exposing other people to potentially your infectious diseases getting a vaccine every year if it's available, because not only does that protect yourself or your children, it also helps protect the community if we have a robust high vaccination rates for a lot of different diseases. And then to think about also this hand hand hygiene on a regular basis and sneezing and coughing into your sleeve, not touching commonly touched uh, surfaces, not touching your face, et cetera. And Dr. Jasper, let me just ask you, uh, Marianne, hold your thought. Okay. I just want to get Dr. Jasper uh, to weigh in uh, on behalf of the listening audience. We we sit, we watch, we see the news, we see the visuals, we see the concern at the nursing home, we see uh, the professional sports teams now considering playing in front, in arenas that are that are empty arenas. All of that external conversation that's out there seems to be settling into our own realities. Uh, and, and I'd love for you to comment on that. I think that's why we're, there's so much angst from individuals. Right. So the social distancing concept is really a good way to try to prevent the spread of a disease. Uh, so when people make these decisions to limit the number of people in any given place, To me, that doesn't mean that this has gotten out of control or any way. It's a way to try to prevent it from getting to that level. And when we talk about the nursing home population, uh, we did talk about the older you are, the more at risk you are for this disease. But that's not a new concept. That's for almost every disease that we have, including just seasonal influenza. The, The people that do worse with seasonal influenza are generally older people that have comorbid conditions like heart disease lung disease or diabetes or immunosuppressed. So sure, it makes good sense that if you're in that category, 
do what you do in flu season. Try to avoid people that are sick. Avoid mass gatherings, good hand washing. Pay even maybe more attention than the younger population that are less likely to get a severe disease. But this isn't a new concept if you're older and immunosuppressed that you're more susceptible to infectious disease. Well, sure. And it's not that the virus likes the cold weather better, but maybe because we're all indoors and close to each other in close proximity that we see a jump in. And really, we should get your flu shots in October. That's what we really stress. Do it as early in the season as possible. And for our listeners, the CDC, that's all you have to Google, CDC, don't have to remember the website. They have 23 different documents that talk about um, infection control and how you can, um, they actually have a, a great video on how to wash your hands properly, as does WHO, the World Health Organization. And it's uh, a process that if you get into that good habit, it's wonderful. And we're going to ask Dr. Alice again, uh, whom should be tested? Because I think that that deserves a little bit more um, clarity. We'll pick up that question with Dr. Steve Alice, who's in the studio uh, after our final commercial break. Also, Dr. Edward Jasper uh, is with us. Uh, we'll return on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. We'll try and squeeze in uh, a question or two. Uh, remember, you can go to yourradiodoctor.com and replay the broadcast uh, or the podcast of this morning's live show. Back in a moment. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie can be enjoyed on Radio.com as well. And you can listen to the show at your convenience. Just go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Back here on Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Rich. It's a live special show here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. It's our final segment. Dr. Edward Jasper, Dr. Steve Alice uh, in studio. Dr. John Zerlo joined us in the opening half hour of the program. Some of the questions coming in, uh, Dr. Marianne and uh, Dr. Uh, Alice and Dr. Jasper, uh, about travel. A lot of questions texted into us and called in about travel uh, as an individual or even one reference to their child being overseas. So right now with travel, traveling abroad internationally, there is high risk in some select countries that there's a level three or two CDC travel advisory in place right now. And those places are South Korea, China, Iran, and Italy. And Japan has a level two advisory. And what that means is really people coming back from those countries right now are being expected to self-isolate or put themselves in quarantine. Not symptomatic people, we expect, but that have been in a high-risk area, part of the world, and then we want them to stay out of the community, not go to work, not go to school. And so we're seeing uh, universities and schools in our area are doing this as they're repatriating or bringing back people from this part of the world. And so that's a reasonable strategy with these high-risk uh, countries that are out there now. That could change as, as increases in this disease occur in other countries around the world. And so if a... Student comes back from uh, there's all the colleges and universities, at least in our area, are bringing people. There are students back from abroad. How do those students reentry? What is the format? So they're they're being asked to stay in their dormitory or stay in their wherever they live and to not attend classes. Okay. And to just do self quarantine, we call it, which is just monitoring for symptoms. And at the onset of any kind of fever or respiratory type of complaint, to call their doctor. Sure. And is there a time, by the way, for a self-quarantine? Is it 14 days? We're still using 14 days, and it really has to do with incubation period. And so we're hearing and learning more that that's probably a shorter incubation period. But for now, we're still using the 14-day. And, and the other thing that uh, we talk about all the different hygiene, I, I 
want to emphasize one of the things is I saw an interview the other night of a, a man who came back from China with his little girl, and she was drinking a bottle of water, and he coughed, and then he took her water. That means, among other things, coughing into your elbow and throw your dirty tissues away and all that sort of thing. Don't share cups and eating utensils and linens and towels. Try to be meticulous about that because if you are quarantined, we have to worry about the other people in your home as well. And um, so I wanted to give Dr. Alice another uh, chance to clarify whom should be tested. Yes, so right now, and this is changing, but as of now, we have expanded the ability to test more people. But if you're an individual that has no symptoms and you're just concerned that you might have been exposed, either because you traveled to a different part of the United States or you have mild symptoms or someone coughed near you in an airport, something like that, we really don't advise you to call your doctor with the question of, you know, I, I may have been exposed, should I get tested? Because we, we don't want to test people like that right now. We need to have a combination of clinical symptoms, respiratory complaints, cough, fever, and some other kind of travel uh, that's associated with a high-risk setting right now. Perfect. And Dr. Jasper, can you tell us a little bit about the beauty of telemedicine? Right. So telemedicine allows patients to interact with a healthcare provider or physician. Uh, You can video call, and in that way, you're not going to the office. It saves you the travel. Plus, it doesn't expose other people if you're not feeling well, and that you, in turn, wouldn't be exposed to people that might be sick in a doctor's office or waiting room. So I think it's an ideal way to try to get your questions answered if you're not feeling well to set up a telehealth visit. Sure. Um, and I think it's it's important for our listeners to understand that um, we are working very hard. These are people with experience that we're talking to and working together, experience, intelligence, and we don't know what will happen. As we've said over and over, we don't know the nature of the virus. It's evolving. It's dynamic. Um and as the numbers continue to rise, we have to be prepared, and we are. And if you have questions, I want you to stay up to date with the CDC website. Um, the federal government is working closely with the state and local partners as well as public health partners. Um, how about the, one of the popular questions we got is, can drinking Corona beer give me the coronavirus? I'm going to guess no. Joe, any questions from our listeners? Just to follow up, I wanted to follow up with Dr. Jasper on uh, telemedicine. If you're using telemedicine, what should you be prepared to talk about? Your symptoms, your history, people that you are that you may have come in contact with. What should you do to be prepared for that call? Right. So we already have lists of questions that the telemedicine providers will wouldn't get from you. And that's the things that Dr. Allison, Dr. Zerlo talked about, what your symptoms are, where you've traveled, who you came in contact with, uh, to see if you really have a risk for uh, COVID. Uh, if not, most of these would be treated like what's circulating cold viruses and influenza viruses, and you wouldn't be considered an at-risk person. Dr. Alice, one question for you. Um, the city of Philadelphia um, has uh, uh, did a press conference at City Hall um, they are taking um, the necessary steps to communicate with the public and communicate with the residents uh, of Philadelphia, but there has to this point been no closure of schools or anything like that. That's correct. And so we haven't identified our first cases here in Philadelphia. We expect that we likely will any day, maybe this week that's ahead of us. And so measures like school closure and other things, uh, we we take 
We have to make those recommendations very carefully based on what is likely to decrease transmission and protect public health and what doesn't have a big impact on routine operations that are essential for the city to operate and for our healthcare uh, facilities to continue to operate. One question that came in, and I know we're running up on time, but I did want to get this question in. Um, I care for my elderly parents. They're in a nursing home. Should I do anything different today that I haven't done up to this point? Yeah, great question. And so I'd be concerned as well. That's a reasonable question to have and concern. So again, it comes back to um, your own uh, infection control and personal hygiene, keeping your own hands clean. If you become sick, then avoid visiting that individual um, and making sure that in the environment that they're in, that there's good uh, practices in place for infection control and prevention. Well, I'd like to thank our guests today. Dr. John Zerlo, Chief of Infectious Disease at Jefferson, uh, Dr. Ed Jasper, who is our COVID-19 Task Force Leader and the Director of Bioterrorism and Disaster Preparedness. It sounds like we are really working hard to be prepared. And Dr. Steve Ellis from the Philadelphia Department of Public Health, who is the Director of the Division of Disease Control. So many questions yet to be determined. Keep in mind, you can visit the website for the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. Uh, Department of Health has a website in Philadelphia, and we're here to help you. Really good information today on this live edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne uh, Ritchie. I think a great suggestion from Dr. Jasper about telemedicine. Uh, I think that will allow people to stay comfortable in their own home and have that conversation. Uh, And great information from Dr. Alice as well uh, about uh, travel and about uh, the need to be attentive to what's happening around you. That's going to do it for this live edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Uh, remember, you can go to radio.com or you can go to yourradiodoctor.com and re-listen to the broadcast. Quickly, Marianne. And remember, your health is your wealth. See you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.